You're listening to Influx Collective, the podcast, Walking Amongst the Rubble, UndocuQueer Pride. I'm learning to let my sorrow fall apart. I take pride in being a survivor. I hate the American dream. (laughs) My name is Corey Brabby-Rudd, and I'm one of your co-hosts. And I'm your other host, Diana Gutierrez. We started as a queer poetry reading series, uh, but basically our mission is to connect LA-based poets, promote queer events, and provide a space and a platform for queer creators and queer content. And Influx is a place for audience members to hear stories that reflect their own and for performers to find an audience that understands. Supporter programming at Patreon. Uh, we are at patreon.com slash Influx Collective without an E. So we're here with Sonia Giansaka. They're an international acclaimed poet, cultural organizer, and social justice activist. They're a writer, performer, create narrative poems on essays on migration, queerness, feminism, climate change, and nostalgia. Thank you so much for being here. We were both just talking about how excited we were to to chat with you. And you're one of the people that we've we've been wanting to work with for a while just because we've both read your work. Diana showed me your work originally and we were just both really I'm a devout follower. It. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. If my sister my was a Capricorn were here, she would tell you. She's like, no, it's okay. You know, she she, she farts in her sleep. No, it's not a big deal. So I'm always like, amazing. Um, but my sister does a great job at being like humbly you down. Calm down. Calm down. Calm down. <laughs> Cool. So this was written in 2016 or released in 2016. Um, How long have you been uh, working on your chapbook before releasing it? And and then also, like, what's been your experience with poetry up to that time? Yeah, good question. Nostalgia and Borders. It's about to be five years this December. And that's my math. Yes five years and it was a it's been an accumulation of poems I've written in between protests, in between organizing, in between heartaches and and nostalgia. And I was super scared of putting it out. And I also during that time was applying for a different like chapbook contests and trying to figure out like the poetry scene and realized that a lot of those spaces were not creating like an ecosystem for artists that look like me. Artists, you know, coming from an undocumented background, uh, artists, multidisciplinary artists, uh, multi-layered folks, um, especially those who are not in like MFA programs or the accolades. So it was very, it was very, it was, it was very hard to imagine my book being out there within those spaces. And I'm very grateful that I was surrounded by other undocumented artists during that time who were just doing shit on their own. And my bestie who designed the cover art and the layout of the book, Romito Rico, just sat me down. And like my other like best friend, Emilia Fiaggio, um, we're like, let's just do it. Like, let's just put it out. And... I feel like chapbooks sometimes are are seen as something that right now it's like it started as like DIY. Like you do it, you put it together, it's a collection. There's like there's just such an energy around it. 
uh, and it has become this like a contest and you know like uh, a whole publishing way of of uh, of being very exclusive it was like a form of us taking it back and being like you know well we can put up a chapbook and that re-empowers like the writers the community and so that was the process of nostalgia importers it, it came from me writing on the sidelines uh, when I was being a full-time community organizer and during rejection and and moments of not seeing myself reflected in the literary spaces. And I forgot the other question you had. No, I, I think that you've answered it mostly like, how did you get into, or, or like, if you'd like to elaborate more, um, how did you get into poetry? Was that like your first um, medium of artistry? Because I know you are also like into, or from what I've seen, you're really into like fashion as well. And like, also just like, yeah, like doing, even like I would say photography. Yeah, so I am wondering, like, how did you get into poetry? I always tell the story about how I am this, like, journal person um, and would have those, like, journals with a little locket that really doesn't work, but it's just for, like, just to make you feel it's okay to have privacy from your parents. And so I started with just writing in the in the journals. And it's, I think, being a writer is more about being also a reader and... I went to Frederick Douglass Academy for high school in a very predominantly like Black American community, a historic community. And that's where I was like politicized and came across so much rich literature, uh, specifically by, by Black writers. And so Toni Morrison, Andre Lord, um, it just blew my mind in the, in the way that literature could take me out of like whatever I was feeling and my teenage years of trying to figure out myself, whether it's like um, identity-wise, immigration-wise, like it was just like a way of of making sense into into it just felt homey. And also, my parents always pushed me to go to the library, so the one twenty fifth library in in Amsterdam, like that library branch was where I went and took out books and video cassettes um, when that was a thing. And yeah, so like the library was a home and it was a place to, I just couldn't imagine something you can just borrow and and then return it. And that just kind of like mutuate kind of like situation going on. Now I have the language, but yeah, so like poetry started with like a, a passion for literature, a passion for readers and a passion for just like these magnificent writers who who were reflecting the times, but who also help us imagine like newer language and, and, and ways to imagine our communities. And so I picked that up a little bit more as a writer when I want to say when I started um, ending high school and I was trying to make sense of my undocumented status. That was like my mechanism of situating whatever I was feeling onto page and just reflecting and I'm pretty sure like it was like horrible poems then there, you know, like just trying to be like William Shakespeare and stuff, which I should have known. Like, I actually know um, that's what I thought that literature was supposed to be. And I felt like it was so quote unquote foreign. It wasn't until later on getting exposed to writers of color that um, in, in, in college, like first year of college, um, through my women's and gender studies um, classes or my Africana Puerto Rican Latino studies classes where I'm like, wow, like we are these like 
brilliant poets and writers and, and we can do that. And it, my poem doesn't have to be talking about like the woods. Um, like I can talk about the, the house and my mother and, and, and all these ways that um, other writers of colors have presented themselves in literature. So yeah, I gravitated to poetry. I'm also from New York City, so slam poetry was a big, is a big thing and was an incredible space of being in community with with people, younger people um, who had so much to say about our government, who had so much to say about the different injustices that were happening. And so, um, yeah, slam poetry. Um, and so I think some of my performance um, leans into some of that. It's not so much about, uh, it started off more on being this oral storyteller. And, and then it has navigated or shifted over to being more on page. And I'm still trying to make amends with that kind of like how my poetry lives and exists on page, because I often think that it mirrors a lot of the exclusivity of, of the literary spaces, that it has to look a particular, very clean way, a very format way, robbing like away from the fact that we can be all over the page and that's okay too. And like uh, grammar, it's okay to be off. If I could ask a question, it's really interesting that you said that you're living with how your poetry lives on page. Can you like delve into that? Like, what do you mean? I think for me, uh, as somebody who's also like non-binary, as somebody who's like migrant, who's like, who's fat, who's brown, who's like all these different things, specific formats and specific things, like the fixation on like something being so fixed is something that I like, try to move away from. And I'm interested on, on being intentional about like, what kind of work are we putting out of our communities? Uh, how does it feel for me as a cultural worker? Um, so that it's not just about productivity and production, but, but it brings up the fact that I, I'm doing this for myself too, um, and that for how people may want to see it. So I think what I was trying to say is that I'm all about disrupting pages and papers uh, as someone who didn't have papers and like just just fucking shit up because I feel like there's so much so much magic in the fluidity of things. And so, and I also don't like to be put into a box. So many times it's like, you're a poet and you have to be this certain type of poet or this type of community organizer, activist, like you better not be into like makeup or um, if you're non-binary, like you better be more like masculine of centered. So there's like a lot of things that um, I'm used to. I want to disrupt and that begins on paper. And that also speaks through like, the way that I want my poetry to live. Um, so it can look on my chapbook. It can look um, on the way that I post on my Instagram. Um, it can look in, it can be reflected in the ways that I work with other visual artists and partnering with them because I feel like that's where we can push and and really create something that is not because we're told it's supposed to look a certain way. I feel like I gave you such a vague answer. Um, no, I think that interest in like making something not necessarily so like fixed is is really interesting. And it's it's one of the things that I actually I did notice about your work when I was reading it. And, and one of the things I actually wanted to ask you about, too, was I noticed that Nostalgia on Borders, it, it goes through multiple printing renditions, it seems. And what I was really fascinated by when we were reading our most recent copy um, was that it referenced COVID, which to me meant it was like there was a lot of 
more recent materials. Um, but at the same time, as you said, it's been something that's been in the work for like four, four or five years, right? Um, so I guess I'm wondering how how you go about. I guess it kind of like goes into that, what you're talking about, about the fluidity of it. And like, maybe I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you change it for each reprinting. I think, so one of the things is that I want to, I always want to offer something to community. And so that's like my, my giving my, my, my hugs on paper and there's, I feel like I'm on my, you know, like these musicians who don't put an album in a long time or, you know, that person who does that one film and never comes back. And I feel like Nostalgia and Borders was that project that I had time during in that moment in 2016 uh, to create something. Um, and ever since, I feel like because I wear so many hats and for a long time I was holding, I was helping run an, a nonprofit and, uh, and I was supporting artists and cultural workers and creating all these different pipelines, infrastructure for other migrant, other queer trans artists. And so I didn't have the time to create. I was so exhausted and tired. And so over those periods of time, it's, it's helped to put out a new version of the nostalgia and borders. And so this is where I'm like, here's something that I want to give you. Here's like a little remix. I feel like it's a mixtape, like uh, different volumes of a mixtape. And and also part of it is I've been sitting on Papi Femme, um, which is like my next chapbook. And I felt that for many writers and poets and artists and cultural workers that demand to put out something, to stay relevant, to create, um, to build a platform. It's so real and, and so there's so much pressure and and because it's intertwined with people's livelihoods. Um, like I understand and I felt that pressure and part of me holding back on Papi Femme is really centering with for whom am I doing this for and what is the reason? Is it to satisfy a demand, a quota? Um, to be in that museum, to be, you know, listed in, in for an award, um, to get new followers. And I think that's what I try to steer away from and really honor like my creative process, even if that takes another year, even if like I sit with like these poems. But for now, I have felt comfortable like adding a poem here in Nostalgia and Borders and another one um, and maintaining it in the way that it I was able to do it during that time with like limited money and the limited budget. And I wanted to maintain that essence of like so DIY, uh, even if the pages don't align to like, I wanted to maintain that to remind us like we can produce our work and push it out. Um, we don't have to wait for entities, big publishing to take up our work, to make it like so beautiful. Um, but then we sign off our, like, you know, like on creative direction and, and have to deal with the, you know, like problematic um, institutional bullshit and legal stuff. So um, over the years, yeah, so I, I played around with it. I played around with the color covers um, with my with my um, creative partner, Romy. And, and this is it. Like, this is now like the fourth edition since December, since that December 2016. And I don't even look like that anymore. Um, my hair has gone through so many things. It's a project so beloved to me that that in my offering to community, I keep adding and to also honor myself as an artist and, and cultural worker. Yeah, what I've always like personally as another poet admired about you is that you 
very much like maintain your focus on the undocumented community. And like, I remember finding your poetry when I was first understanding my undocumented status. I was going through, I remember Trump got elected and I, from what I remember, you had released a couple of photos of just being like serene in your like resilience to live and like in your, in your just like wanting to uh, experience joy. And I remember seeing those posts and feeling so blown away just because like I'm also coming from an organizing experience. Not I didn't delve into it too deeply, but I did spend some time organizing in uh, Santa Monica College. I ended up realizing that 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 didn't fit with my personality because as an artist, we I don't know, it's it's really hard to just like stay in that narrative of we need to be. Uh, the ultimate organizers and we need to be in like high energy all the time. And so then, yeah, when I remembered seeing your posts, I realized like, oh, wow, there's another person like me who just wants to be and whatever that means and just wants to breathe. And I really like how you put that out there, put that in in, in your book, especially um, in your persona. And I'm wondering did you ever, uh, it, when you were like making these de- decisions of like being a disruptor, did you ever feel like you were doing something counterproductive to your career? Like, were you like, did you ever like, how do you, how do you feel? Like, how are you so confident? I'm wondering, I'm, I'm really just like, in awe as well, because as undocumented folks, we're so pushed to just like not believe in ourselves and you're accomplishing it. And so I'm just wondering like, how? I think for me i'm very grounded in my family and my like lineage and who i come from and unfortunately at a very young age i had to like very mature like mature as somebody who was assigned a birth you know female and like a young girl and and i think like always knowing like what was happening around me and so I always tell people, I'm like, I'm always becoming, like, I I haven't landed anywhere. And that has helped with so many things that are working out in the ways that I wanted them to work out. And I think the big realization that hit me and was like right before college, all I wanted to do is like be this amazing, like businesswoman, maybe a professor or something. And I studied so much. I was like my little high school like schedule was like softball volleyball student counselor you know writer i don't know what else i did like hbo mentorship program all these different things and like i feel like there was like a business summer program that was like outlining my next couple of years as like as this person going into work into wall street and and my my pathway was to attend cornell get a summer internship with like merrill lynch and throughout that process like understanding that maybe that wasn't where I was going to go, but I was still, I was going to work for it because I wanted to make my parents proud. And I feel like a lot of migrant children hold that first generation folks, like 1.5, however we want to describe, like children of migrants have so much of this pressure, whether it's like we put that pressure on ourselves or society or our parents, um, our guardians, whoever, like, you know, we're cared after, um, that I feel that it was a big hit when my immigration status didn't change. I had my high school teacher and I always tell this story. I'm like, my, my, my high school guidance counselor said, this will be like the highlight of your life. 
like graduating college will be the highlight of your life. And I was shocked. And I was like, you know, in my, in my New Yorker Harlem, where am I dead ass? Like what? Like, and I think that that was like a moment of also leaning into other undocumented folks um, who were coming from Jamaica or Nigeria. And it was like a couple of us who at that moment, maybe we weren't like friends, um, but we all kind of got the same talk from our guidance counselor. And then we realized like, oh shit, you're also undocumented, um, which I would have loved to know in freshman year. That was a wake up call. But unfortunately, like this kind of wake up calls and like the plan A not working out and the plan B then not working out, plan C, like that's why you plan so many times. I've known that through my parents when they were undocumented and like trying to navigate their own careers and lives and love and stuff. And my pa- and my grandparents and my aunts and cousins and friends, I just been grounded on, on like a lineage of folks who just been like trying to figure out life. I didn't end up going to Cornell and I ended up going to Hunter College and I even became more politicized there with like through the women's and gender studies, through the Africana Puerto Rican Latino studies department and to be around other folks who who were from all age, who were returning back to school. And so I was like in in a room with other folks uh, of different ages who had children, who were trying to figure out how to do this college thing. And, And then so I'm grateful that I went through that pathway and always being waking up to the reality of our world um, that nothing is like cookie cutter and that we are always in this process of becoming and we don't know what other people are going through and we need to make the best out of our life that can look like in rest that can look like as being an artist a creator um, that can look like as being a caretaker or sometimes moving back from that and that has humanized my process of like of dealing with like what am I doing with my career uh, and the risks? Because, yeah, there's many times that I do sit down and this is like maybe a couple of weeks ago, maybe even yesterday. I'm like, what am I doing? I haven't gotten that funding or that support. I'm like, wow, that person got a book deal. Good for them. And also I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And I feel like we live in a such a competitive culture and such a culture of scarcity but I'm always reminded about like we we are in community and and there's so much and my pathway doesn't have to be in a particular way I've gone from being like at a very young age like situating myself in like in very cultural institutions and nonprofits, and having a a clear pathway towards soon to become a deputy director executive director or something or if I was in a as a community organizer like moving up in in particular ways maybe running for congress or something and then in literary spaces the same thing like becoming more um going into these spaces that maybe i wouldn't have been able to get into uh, but now because i may have like this like anthology book deal not it allows me like but all of these spaces most of these spaces are very toxic and don't care for artists or people that look like us or sound like us or have experiences like us and I'm not interested about that. Uh, and I'm not interested in saving institutions. Uh, they can all burn. I'm, I'm interested in like, what does our community need? And artists are part of that community. We tend to think of community, like our community and then artists are removed from them, but artists make that community. And as you were asking me the question about like moving away from community organizing, I always tell people, most of our organizing spaces, all this like big movement spaces, activist spaces, their strategy came from culture strategy. It came from artists and culture workers. Uh, many of us like had those multiple 
hats. That's why they were so badass. Those chants, those shirts, uh, the strategy, the policy, the language, all of that came from other artists and cultural workers. And if you're looking at the undocumented movement, uh, a lot of those folks have shifted over to doing cultural work and narrative work. Um, not because it's like, um, it is like trendy now, but also because many of those folks were like originally were artists and cultural workers and they didn't have the capacity or the infrastructure or the resources to, to be that full time. Uh, but they were there. Like um, if you think about like when people were wearing caps and gowns, like that was very strategic performance. If you're thinking about uh, the way people were organizing and building community, that's like really centering cultural work. And, and I think that my confidence comes into just like not being attached to, again, like not being attached to things being fixed in a particular way and, and knowing that I'm human and, and, and wanting to, to live along with my community and, and whatever form that looks like. And like the awards, the grants, the, all of these different things. They're not going to hug you at night. They're not going to be there with you when you're like, uncle is passing away from COVID. Like none of that matters. Ultimately, it's going to be like, how did I, what was my role? And, and leaving a better world for, for future generations, but also like on reducing the harm that it's out there already. And so that's where my interest is. And that's where my confidence is. And sometimes because we live in capitalism, that does take a toll and income and resources and support. I hope and I wish and I'm working towards uh, creating a better ecosystem for artists and cultural workers. So one that they're standing up when they're doing things outside of the box, when they're interested in saving like this, like very white cis man run institutions or whatever, like that, that there's like a platform or something um, to hold them and to be whoever they want to be, um, and that there's no risk to their healthcare or their finance or their housing. Like, I, I want to wish that for like fellow artists and cultural workers of color. But thank you for the confidence because, um, no, but I, I always say like, I also struggle with confidence and self-esteem and it's just like all the isms have done its damage on me. And I'm grateful for my therapist who has helped me down all these sessions to remind me and to, and to honor like who I'm becoming in and how I'm becoming and what I'm changing and reflecting and getting better or forgiving myself and being compassionate. But I also like, I struggle with confidence all the time. Thank you for sharing all of that. Wow. I just, your experience in like being documented spaces as like an organizer, it looks like it brought a lot of insight into where artistry comes from. And then also, also just like showed your, it kind of just like made your confidence a lot more like, and I keep using the word confidence, but that's not what I mean. It, it just like feels like it gave like a spine to your narrative work. And I definitely could could relate with that because I remember when when the undocumented youth protests were happening around like 2009, 2008. And so, yeah, I, I remember those like chants and kind of just like coming out of the shadows per se. All of that action made made it so like I was able to voice that I was undocumented and that and for that reason, I have a narrative now. And yeah, it, I'm, I'm so like 
honor to be here with one of one of the people that like was in that in that movement. So about your ecosystem of like artists and cultural workers, we're seeing that you're starting Alegria Press, right? Which is uh, it's a publishing house for queer, trans, non-binary, and migrant undocumented writers. And are you able to share more about that? Like, I, we're curious because like, you know, there isn't any presses that we know of that hold space for just like undocumented writers. Yeah. Um, and doing a lot of like uh, national cultural organizing, um, I came across so many badass folks who are just like doing shit and not depending on institutions or 501c3s or like waiting for that, whatever. Um, and I think that I'm thinking about like, um, um, like Smink Smink Books, which uh, is like another publishing house. Like it's very like DIY. It's not about like making money out of those, out of those books or like uh, or capitalizing on like those authors or those writers. Um, it's just about like, what do we, what do we create? Um, and so... Yeah, so I think that I'm I'm really exhausted by the publishing world. Um, I don't want to engage with it. I don't I don't want to save them. They can also burn. You know, they can disappear. They can redistribute their funds. I'm not here to educate problematic editors. I'm also thinking I'm like all these like writing institutions, uh, poetry foundations, all these different things. You know, like so many so many of these like institutions and and platforms that take up so much space that will go unnamed for legal reasons. I'm tired of censoring them, and I'm exhausted by having uh, my fellow writers and emerging writers thinking that like that's the only route. And I've also noticed like fellow writers and cultural workers who I've come up with who've also like leaned so much on like centering those institutions. And I want to be conscious about like, what are we reflecting back to like emerging writers? And so uh, House of Alegria, uh, I had to play around with the name, but House of Alegria is going to be launched at, actually at the end of June, very timely because June is my month, but it's just June is also Pride uh, month. And I wanted to center that, yeah, creating spaces for for us, by us. And it's not new, like we, we've Many folks have done this. Uh, we create our own uh, performance spaces, writing spaces, retreats, all these different things. And and I want to do that. And, and my own experience with different publishing um, houses also haven't been the best. They've been very hurtful and harmful. And yeah, and I feel like we have fellow cultural workers uh, who are always down to help out. And, and I'm very grateful for the community of cultural workers who are, whether are my besties or my roommates who are like let's just let's, let's do it let's not wait I'm grateful that that I have a little bit of my own savings to put into it it's not a lot you know but it's something so House of Alegria will be that will be to support fo- folks and pushing out their first chapbooks so I will be uh, working with them to create and design to help edit um, but be a little bit hands off playing with space too, in terms of like providing, um, giving up my room so that they can have a place to write from. I know I come from a big family and it's been a struggle to find a quiet space. I want to provide that. Again, we don't have a lot of funding and I'm not interested in also like getting funding, institutional funding because of the specific dealer proposal that they may want to do uh, or want from me. Uh, Again, like I want it to be by us from us. 
And so, yeah, so providing housing so that they can have it for a couple of weeks so they can work on it. I have a vast network of folks that I've been very grateful to to connect over the past decade of work that I've done. And so it was like other directors and writers and cultural workers, fashion people, like, you know, climate, whatever. Like, I, I think that uh, I'm not in, interested in being a gatekeeper. I want us to talk to each other and to build this ecosystem. And so that's what House of Alegria is going to be. And and when their chapbook goes out, whatever money is made goes into the next project of the next writer. I have two folks who we're going to pilot with and they are going to have the summer and the other person's going to have uh, the fall and little chapbooks are going to come out from them. And I'm excited. I'm nervous. Uh, there's going to be things that I'm going to fail in. Um, but that's part of, of just ideating and piloting things. But I know it's going to come from heart and it's going to come from community. And that's more important than getting finance um, or mirroring uh, a certain structure that already exists that has failed us already. So, but yeah, that's House of Alegria. It's named after my uh, paternal grandmother, Alegria Iñazaka, and Alegria means uh, joy and happiness. She's been always in my dreams, and so I wanted to honor. Um, the logo is being drawn by my grandfather, so there's like all aspects of it. Um, the website is already done. That's that's as much as I can share. That's 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 House of Alegria. That sounds incredible. That's such exciting work. It's so needed. It's so needed. I can't even express how needed it feels like. What I'm so happy about like Gen Z and about the generation that's coming up is that and even like people that are like among our age and are are emerging as writers is that they're seeing that there's a lot more opportunities now than there was maybe like 10, 15 years ago. And that brings me so much joy to just be able to see that there is like so many more spaces. Even like one of our mentors, like uh, Rika Aoki, she was saying how she's comfortable now as like a trans woman and how like that wasn't the case when she was growing up. And I remember that staying with me because I feel the same way as like a non-binary kid who is also like femme-centered sometimes and so I just like yeah I, I think that it's so great that these spaces are coming out this podcast is brought to you by the city of West Hollywood's One City One Pride LGBTQ Arts Festival each year the city of West Hollywood celebrates pride with its One City One Pride LGBT Arts Festival which runs from Harvey Milk Day May 22nd through the end of June Pride Month I wonder, Sonia, if you could tell us a little bit, because uh, we're also we're really excited to hear about Somewhere We Are Human. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your that upcoming anthology. Yeah, uh, Somewhere We Are Human has been a hard and long process of an anthology. My first time working with a publisher, you know, it's a very um, new territory and complicated territory for a person of color, a person who's migrant, who's non-binary, all the, you know, all the identities in there. I will say that I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to support uh, emerging writers, emerging undocumented writers that like, I feel like 
oftentimes we turn to the same folks and oftentimes it's the same cis, uh, cis men, uh, creatives, artists, filmmakers, visual artists, like all these different things, which is incredible. Like, yes, like their work is needed. And also like, oh, what are we doing to continue amplifying this like larger ecosystem of undocumented migrant writers and writers who are also coming, not just from like the dreamer identity, but also who maybe have aged out or who may not be from it or reject the dreamer narrative. And so this anthology that created an opportunity for me to also like pay those folks to bring in some visual artists, to bring in, to, to put out an open call where now I know of so many folks um, that maybe weren't in my periphery. And so there's poems, there's essays, and it's, you know, it's done in collaboration with Reina Grande. And I think that one thing to note is like, this is the first time, like, well, not the first time I, that I know that is like documented somewhere, but I'm pretty sure there's, there's so many anthologies and chapbooks and, and so forth uh, and books that maybe haven't been documented. And so, but this is an incredible moment of, of bringing into like femme woman to, from totally different um, coasts and to do an open call and um and i'm very proud of some of the writers that are that we're bringing in and and what it means to to just create a platform and that allows for more emerging voices and and so i'm happy and it's been like countless nights of like staying up and editing and just studying because these are brilliant writers and like there's pieces that it just like haunts me beautifully haunts me at night it's gonna come out uh, we can't give up the date yet but we are we're excited what else can i say and it's a range of folks uh, originally we were gonna only bring in about 30 folks 35 folks and we were able to advocate and bring in uh about 44 folks and so that means part of my cultural work is also like ensuring that everybody gets paid what they need to get paid and so we ensure that everybody gets eight hundred dollars which is a large contribution for an anthology we know what it means um to be in this kind of economic time that we're in because of the pandemic and so many of our artists and cultural workers have lost jobs gigs and so this is like our way of of, of of helping somehow and what else uh every aspect of it is like undocumented so the cover art is actually being designed by one of the writers who's also an embroiderer and so that's a detail that i can give i hope that this i don't hope i know that this is this is an opportunity for so many folks to read such incredible writings i can't wait for for the world to get like hands on to, to these books. And uh, it's gonna be translated in Spanish as well. So then that way my, my mom can read it. I feel like the hardest part was, um, I'm also contributing some poems and that was the hardest part because you go from editor brain to like having to be the writer and and hoping to make justice to just like the collection that we put together. Yeah, it's it's been a long journey and uh, it's been hard. The highlight is is the writers themselves. Like the highlight is the the writers and and that is hella queer and hella trans and hella non-binary and that's like my engagement with this anthology was that to bring in writers who are often left out and writers that that I even didn't know about and excited about being in in company with them so yeah i really want to pre-order it is there like a, is are we able to like on your website 
Uh, not yet. We are working on many things. Part of it, it's a long process. One thing that I've learned is that the publishing world took a hit last year of like rescheduling a lot of things. And so, um, our, ours is in the works. Uh, you also have like a Virgo and a, a Gemini working together. So we have a lot of, you know, feedback for production and, and covers and stuff. And so when, when there's a, um, a pre-order, we'll launch it out. You'll see it. Cause so many of our folks, like it's just like, it's so rich with so many writers and cultural workers and artists who are part of it. And so the world will get around uh, once it goes out um, on social media and so forth. But I'll keep you posted. I'm curious if you could tell us just a little bit about like maybe your connection to LA. For the past, I want to say like eight years, I was by coastal between New York and the Bay Area. And that was for work. And it was like a consistently going back and forth. And I love Oakland, which is like amazing, incredible organizing that is happening there. Just like uh, when we think of like climate change, a lot of like, you know, frameworks and concepts have come from folks there. And and I feel like the way that I used to imagine, I'm pretty sure other folks used to imagine um, New York, it's like very touristy place. And LA was like, of course, there's like the heaviness of the narrative of like Hollywood and being here. But I always also was surrounded by other LA folks, people from Boyer Heights who were doing organizing, who were doing incredible work, artists, visual artists. I feel like, so that was like my association with LA. But majority of my time for the past eight years was going back between, was like California, New York, but mostly in, in the Bay Area. And I uh, made a shift to move out here um, during a time in my previous work as they were thinking of like branching out and, and working out more into like and to Hollywood stuff and larger narratives. And um, I'm happy that, that that was an opportunity that allowed me to move out here. And I I think that I'm not interested in, in Hollywood. And, and so my connection in staying in LA, I, I think that I saw a lot of the beautiful work that was being done by like other API artists. My partner who works with like travel, like groups uh, and repatriation work, just like Tangba, like artists, like all these different things. Like I was like, this is the kind of like ecosystem that I want to be engaged with and I want to be part of and like learn more too. And also like learning about like, this is a Western, like I don't want to say state, city, like aspect of like, there's so much here, like so much richness, so much like Western culture. Um, there's also like the, um, the correlation with like the border, with climate change. And so I feel like there's like so much here, so much richness. And as somebody who like, I know very firsthand when people move to New York, people romanticize like the history there and the environment there. That's one thing that like, I've tried to move away from and check myself. And so I'm very grateful that I have a place here. And I I also know that my being here happened during the pandemic. It was like a very hard time to also get I get to know LA. And so I'm excited to get to know it a little bit better as get better with the pandemic. But yeah, so my relationship with LA has been like was work related, was building with with communities that I want to build with also like the neighboring towns and the neighboring neighborhoods so like 
the amazing organizing that is happening by undocumented farm working families and artists, uh, especially in the Inland Valley and Coachella Valley. And I felt like I want to make myself available in any way to like to support the work, not parachuting, but really support the work in however I am, whether it's like House of Alegria and, and navigating that. What else? Like, so that's my relationship with LA because there was always a fear of traveling uh, when I was growing up that my first kind of trips was as an organizer. So when we were going to do a different type of civil disobedience or actions in Georgia or DC or whatever, that was like my first relationship to traveling. And then a little bit more, I came out here to LA at the beginning of like forming this like national organization. And some of those organizers were like, you know, grew up in LA and just as like to be in their home. Like, I don't understand the concept of homes. Like I know building. And so it was like such a great experience like it felt it was an amazing experience and then my relationship with like the bay area but my first times in the bay area i was like yeah i'm gonna hop on the train or the bus and you know in 30 minutes i can be in la and then being reminded like how vast california is and so that's one thing like this new yorker learned and i'm still learning so much about la and so much about california so much of the political organizing whether it's around like abolition work climate change indigenous sovereignty like a lot of the work that is happening la gets that work gets erased by like the presence of hollywood and the glamour and so i'm i'm excited about really connecting with the folks who are doing those amazing works whether it's around housing whether it's around around um, climate change and all those different movement spaces that that I wish more people knew about and paid attention to. And that goes with like Midwest folks to Midwestern states who, who do so much work and who have created frameworks for many of us to build from. Thank you so much. That was really that was an interesting perspective. But yeah, I, didn't, I hadn't thought about if someone is coming in you know, from the outside, like thinking about it and that really glamorized, like I, I totally see what you're talking about and how maybe that does, that can erase some of the things that are going on. One of the things that I even noticed was there is such a huge queer and like queer poetry specific scene here. And like, I that was one of the reasons why Influx started because I, I, you know, I met like a ton of people at a conference basically in LA for queer writers and most of them were from LA already. And I was like, why did we have to wait and pay all this money? And, you know, when we're all literally right here already. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was, that was really cool. Yeah, I think I would add one thing is like, is either the glamorize or the very like sadness of it, like sad, like LA and like all these different things. Um, and I think for me, it's been very important to to experience and to be in community with folks who are doing just like badass work who hold the complexity of, of LA in the same way uh, I would love somebody if they come to New York and hold the complexity of like yes there's gentrification and also there's beautiful community communities who have been doing like ongoing resistance and ongoing visionary work and so like I'm here as a learner and to sit back and know my place too and in the privilege that I come with um, and and to learn history and to and to really situate myself in the space um, and to be of support in any capacity. I'm not interested in taking leadership in anything. Um, I think um, it's been a lot of like moving back. But yes, and and just like the beautiful queer culture and the queer organizing that happens here, uh, specifically with like um, with with non-binary and trans like folks and communities who who are doing so much badass work um, that deserves so much credit. Um, And 
and it goes unnoticed. Um, so, yeah. Um, Sonia, do you feel like you it, you would feel comfortable maybe like reading a couple pieces for us? Yeah. I wonder what the questions are so that I can pick those poems. We were just talking about how like it's so hard. It was so hard for us to like not be like, hey, can you read the whole book? Because <laughs> <laughs> because all of it like was just so it was so good and especially like um i think as like people that have like family outside of the country uh like my family's scattered all over the world i i felt like a lot of your poetry like with the border stuff with nostalgia stuff like calling cars especially like oh my god it took me back so much so i was like Corey and i were like back and forth like we want this one to be here we want that one and we were like oh my god we want all of them to be here <laughs> so we just have to like <laughs> so we just gotta like yeah so so just like choose um yeah choose whatever when you want to especially read yeah i could do calling cards um all right we'll go with calling cards one Across oceans and land, working to connect one phone line with another. Like an umbilical cord, these five, 10, 20 square cars are more than plastic. These calling cards have heartbeats. Two, we survived through phone lines, a cycle of dialing numbers. On the other line waited abuela, on the other line waited memories, on the other line waited birthday wishes that should have been given in person while eating guava cake but we were here and you were there on the other line. We waited by payphones. We waited for your voice. We waited. That is all we had. My dad waited for you. He still does. Three. How do you dial a loved one when your fingers have worked out, have worked out from weaving too many memories? When your voice has changed since the last time you saw them in person, your bones have broken from their absence. Your lips have withered. Your face is the only clue left of what they might look like now. Perhaps it's best not to look in the mirror. Perhaps you are too ashamed of holding on to old memories. Four, I can still hear Abuelita Alegria's voice. Abuelita, como esta Ecuador? Si, si, Abuelita, prometo que regreso. And then a long pause. You hear her shuffling the phone, trying to remember which side to talk from. She's not familiar with Dick's technology. I call it old school. Some call it poverty. Abuelita's gentle voice rocks me back to memories of when she carried me as a baby. My face lays flat on her back. She hangs up and I lay gripping onto her words, trying not to let go. Never enough minutes. Five. Calling cards don't have heartbeats anymore. They just hang in the store, teasing you. Now, dad stops at the bodega for other reasons. His mouth curls up around the rim of the bottle, longing for one more conversation. I think he believes that with every beer, he gets closer to heaven, closer to her, closer to home. And secretly, I wish that was true. Six. The phone goes unused, like the passport in my wallet. No more dialing, and his palms rest spaces where my grandma is buried. And even then, the lines on his hands create borders, restricting him from getting too close. Dad wants to hold my hand, but mostly 
we look at each other hoping to find comfort. He says that I look like a brother. Wow. Some of the things that um, really disarmed me about this poem um, is when you're you're talking about how when you're talking to your grandmother, uh, you're gripping onto her words, trying to not let go. And, you know, as like someone that also has a relationship with my grandmother via just the telephone and via just like WhatsApp, especially, um, that felt so real and so like, it's so vivid. Um, kind of like as if the phone takes um, like a life form of its own. I really like that you title this calling cards because it seems like they sometimes have life and sometimes have heartbeats because they carry like those connections. Yeah. One of the things that Diana, you had mentioned just when we were talking before was like, and I I don't want to like butcher what you said. So maybe I'll like reference it and you can talk on it a little bit more, but just like, also the act of like having to pay to be with family is like um that that concept in general is just like really just capitalistic and disturbing and goes against everything that we think of when we think of family i don't know if you want to talk more about that too diana or Sonia. yeah i remember the conversation that we were having earlier like that um i was i was sharing with corey how like when my parent and I would go to, or my parent, when my dad and I would go to the 7-Eleven or we'd go to like the liquor store, which is like the bodega, um, like I remember looking at those phone cards and then uh, there was like one, there was ones that like were really good, right? There was ones that were like, like, you know, they were like the top ones and those were expensive. They were like maybe like 20 bucks and some went even like even went up to 50 and I remember I think for my mom's birthday I was like I'm gonna get her a phone card and I was like so excited to be like she gets to talk to to grandma she gets to talk to all her family and she's gonna have so many minutes and when we were talking about it with Corey I was like damn yo like that's so sad (laughs) that like that I was like this is gonna be the best gift ever Um, it kind of made me realize like what the access to our family was like and what, um, yeah. And how we had to like pay for that, how we had to pay to have access to them. Um, so I think that, yeah, you portrayed that in such a vivid and such a, in such a way that like I came out of this, like on, uh, out of this poem, like unbearing what I had buried a long time ago like the yeah I think that this this poem especially did so much Hmm. Um, thank you for that I feel like um, calling cards for me was um, 
it was so present in home. Like I would find it by on the kitchen table or like um, or a quarter next to it because I guess somebody was like scrapping the back so the numbers can show. Um, uh, in my dad's wallet uh, when his parents were still alive and he would have to make time to like call them and, and try to connect with them. Um, and like when I was younger, I was like, I don't want to talk to my aunt or like I don't want to talk. Like, I don't want to. And, and then they're like, hurry up. Cause the minutes are the minutes. And I'm like, okay. And, um, and just like so much of that was so present for me, even now, like, um, those phone booths that existed. Um, so if you didn't want to use the calling cards, you go to the phone booths, um, around the corner. Um, and you sit there and you see all these families just sitting around, you know, and it's like, three people or five people inside the phone booths and the little kids just like making faces at you like and and just like like so grateful for like for some type of tool that allows us to transport ourselves there and to be closer to family and yet that never being enough right um and so i feel like calling cars are both like the calling cars the actuality of it and 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 like this calling to home that um that i don't know if, if, if it ever be uh, do justice to the physicality of like being with family and so yeah calling cards um a lot of my poems um are like these moments that I want to archive about, like my interaction with my families and, and, and calling cards was always present. And I feel like anytime I go to my parents' apartment, uh, I always find like a calling card in a random place. And I'm like, this is from like 2001. Um, and yeah, they're like, they're still living there. You know, they're, they're living in, in the closets and, uh, and in the shoes and, um, and my mom's old purse that she doesn't want to throw out so yeah they're basically relics now which is weird um yeah like they're after like i feel like i want to make like um like from echoing from this poem like i want to like see these more now like i want to make like I don't know, like a little poster of one or something, um, just to remember what it was like to to have to go buy them and have to go get them. Um, and more about this poem, can we ask, uh, why did you separate these into um, like little sections? I see them as thoughts, like I'm moving from one bubble of thought into the next thought. And... Um, a lot of the times when I'm breaking out my my poems, it's not so much for like the reader, but it's for myself to give like for me to breathe to like it's um, a lot of these pieces were written and and they're still achy, but there was like the achiness was so present that I needed a a, a break and a pause before I go to the next one. Um, yeah, because they just land. I feel like he's a breather and, and they land hard. Um, I forget who told me, but they were like, you, uh, like, um, I went to a residency and, and one of the instructors told me that my poems are like beautifully, like um, heartbreaking or something like that. I'm like, I'm like, that's real. Um, and, and so, 
for me, anytime I have to read is also as a performer, that gives me an opportunity to breathe and pause and recollect myself um, because this is still so present for me. Um, yeah, so I sectioned them off this way. And because this is a podcast, we can't really like show you what the poems look like, but I really like how like there's like kind of like two um two vertical like columns of how the poet the po- poem is like spaced out um so you could almost like read it as like you know f- as you would like any type of writing from left to right but also like in any order um and it and the same feeling still comes across of like where like where is this conversation um with land with with another um yeah there's a whole lot of like response that is unanswered from the communication from one column to the other um and then the next poem that we're really curious about um well i don't know we but like Corey, do you i'm like we as in me (laughs) (laughs) um yeah okay so in departure um are you able to read that one yeah okay thank you learning departure for people who had to migrate when they were children one Your tiny brown hands gripping brown and burgundy suitcases with gently packed memories, the sorrows will poke out of the seams. Only one stuffed animal toy will come with you. Escoge uno, abuelita said. The rest, you tell them you will be back. You hide them under your bed, hoping they don't collect too much dust. Too much resentment, becoming fragmented souls in the dark, that, like birds aching to fly with chipped wings, learning that they are not meant for the sky. Two, and you will land in a foreign airport. The suitcases never make it. With no belongings, you take it as a sign that you will never belong. Maybe you too are not meant for the sky. And you learn resentment. I, I like how you titled this, like, Cause we never say like, we're going to depart when we're like, you know, <laughs> but like, um, when you named this departure, were you like thinking about the vivids, like just plain leaving like your Ecuador? Like, um, because that's, yeah, when I go to LAX, that's what I see. It's like, there's departures and then there's arrivals. Um, and it kind of, it gives me like, this poem gives me a really vivid image of the airport and of just like what my relationship to the airport was and I, I and then it makes me wonder what is what are other um undocumented people's relationships to the airport um and some of us don't have that relationship to the airport uh some of us have the relationship to land and such um and so I'm so sad that you only got to bring one stuffed animal I know, and and didn't make it. Fucking TSA. Um. So that's. So did you ever get reunited with your um with your luggage? 
So, um, like I said, like a lot of these pieces um, were about like me trying to make sense of my own immigration, my identity, all these different things. And learning departure was my attempt to talk about my own act, like actuality of migrating. Um, I feel like sometimes an organizing is very like meta, like very figuratively or very theoretically. Um, and I think this was my attempt to like, to really open up about like my immigration, like, um, and so I went back to like a memory. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I'm like, this is what I lost. Um, but I don't know if you can see it's a photo it's a Polaroid photo with the teddy bear that I packed. Um, and that never made it because, um, my suit, case with all my little clothes like got lost um and and i think that i wanted to i don't know like there's like there's a familiarity and like a love to physical things like calling cards and the suitcase and the teddy bears that are so present for me because they hold so much memory and so so much um of myself um and and so learning departure was like named after like learning about like my own immigration but i went back to the moment of like departure and arrival so the hence the title um and yeah it was like i could only pack um a little bit of things um and for legal reasons i can't talk about too much about like my own like what actually was that moment but um i can say from a child's point of view um that it was like a moment of saying goodbye to to my identity to my to my toys to my clothes to whatever i thought that i was you know ecuador was and what home was and and like later on realizing that i like um I was uh, projecting on my teddy bear, like, because I care so much about them as a child. Like, you love your teddy bears. And I'm like, why would I, why would they have thought about me leaving? And it was also like me having a conversation about what did my grandparents think about me leaving? And, um, and, I often wonder, like, they resented me leaving because I resented my parents leaving, even though I was like little. Um, and yeah, um, my suitcase never makes it. And I learned about resentment, and I learned a little bit more about um, about my own engagement with like migration and loss. And, and I think this poem also speaks to like the child and. Um, just because like maybe a child cannot, you know, so eloquently say like the impact of immigration and all these different things, like their, their experience is as valid and, and this little experience of a loss of a, of a teddy bear is so valid, um, and, and so real. And, and I wanted to bring that here that breaks my heart the story of the teddy bear it's really it's so human and uh, yeah it's just the little kid yeah we all have that one little teddy bear that like we had um mine was named papanatas 
Um, and he, um, I don't think I was, he was too big to bring. He was maybe like, I don't know, like a good two, three feet. Um, and my mom was like, you can't put him in the suitcase. And I remember feeling so sad. Also, I had like a weird relationship with my teddy bear <laughs> where I was like, I realized later that maybe I was like a kid that was masturbating with my teddy bear. <laughs> so I'm happy that they didn't make it. Which is real, you know, keeping it real. <laughs> um, I'm happy because like, I was like, damn, you know, that teddy bear was some needed to be washed <laughs> to say the least <laughs> to say the very least um oh god this is gonna make it out to like air um it's okay it's okay <laughs> it's it's, a, it's about humanizing um children in our in our child experience um that oftentimes we don't get to speak about right like in um we're curious as children like um, I, one thing that I I I didn't say so much about the anthology, uh, somewhere we are human is that in my own work and in the anthology, I'm very focused also in decentering like migrant folks and documented folks only come to exist once they arrive into the United States. Like their story is the beginning there, um, and so I'm interested in like we existed before. Uh, we had childhoods, memories, love, sadness. We had all these emotions and somebody called our names. We had nicknames, you know, and and we were real, but there's so much a fixation on our humanity existing once we come into this empire. Um, and so that was like very important for me to do with like learning departure. It's like, um, and any other poems and even the curation of the, of the pieces that made it to the anthology, um, to, to bring these stories before migration and, 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 and maybe during the migration, um, that makes us real. Like we were children and we were curious. I know like, I have a big cut in my knee because I was like, just like jumping around. Uh, but yeah. Poetry, as, as we were talking about before, when we were ending um, learning departure, there is a relationship that we have with, um, with our country of origin. And it doesn't, it definitely doesn't end when we come to the States. Um, and so, I know that if from your posts, I know that you went back to Ecuador. What was that like for your poetry? Was was it like, um, yeah, what was that like? Going back to Ecuador the first time or the only, like a couple of times that I've gone um, was under like very, I, I hope, I was like hoping for like a, like a homecoming kind of situation, um, but it was, because I had death in my family and then other like um, housing things that we needed to handle, family stuff. And I didn't, um, I, I didn't know what to expect because um, I think like a lot of my my family members who already had like maybe like papers or a green card or something, um, had it for a long time in their adulthood. And this was me in my twenties. Like, um, 
I'm also like very like emo and I was like, oh my God, like this moment of going back home, like you fight all these years to, you know, like to eradicate like borders and, and, and so forth. And this moment of like returning home into your, to, to family, even though like a lot of my family members are dead in, in Ecuador and, but returning to graves, um, there was like it held a lot of feelings and a, and a lot of emotions. Um, but I thought, I'm like, I'm coming back, you know, to my people, to my home. And, you know, Ecuador missed me or maybe stopped uh, once I left. But I realized I came back and I was read as American. Um, and how I was described to other folks, it was like the American girl. And I'm like, I'm an American, America doesn't want me. I'm a Kodarian. Um, and you know, and they're like American. Um, I also realized that a lot of like Ecuador kept existing. And I think what America does a good job is like, yes, our countries are in turmoil, um, whether it's politically, economically, financially, culturally, like multiple resistance and struggles, but they continue to exist. Um, uh, like communities to continue living, people continue aging. And I had this, like such a Western, like American, like way of thinking, um, of thinking like, things stopped existing outside of me. Um, so to return and to see like our childhood home had gotten old, uh, our neighbors and uh, La Señora Maria who used to take care of me like aged. Um, and like the little kids that I used to hang out with, they have families now, um, was, was just like, okay, like, and also like so many people chose to stay in, in Ecuador, like they still making a living and a life. And, and that also is real, right? Like that's real. Like people decided to stay and people continue living and people, um, loved Ecuador and, um, and made a life out of there. Um, and, and that was like a humbling experience for myself and thinking that everybody wanted to leave, um, or that people left, um, and yes, many of our like, smaller towns, like majority of like 20 year old, 30 year olds, like um, generation of folks have left. So only kids are left or like their grandparents are left. So like the middle gap of like generations have left. Um, so, yeah, so that was like two experiences that I thought I was coming back and like it was going to be like home and like um, and like I would be seen as like like the homecoming of this like Ecuadorian person that we missed, but it was like the American girl came back and, um, simultaneously I also traveled with my grandmother who I love very much, but it's a very complicated lady. And, um, I was purple haired, side shaved, uh, have tattoos, wear purple lipstick. And, um, there was a lot of, um, 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 a lot of like, of, of toning down who I was, um, so that it made it easier to move around spaces. Um, and also like my Spanish is not the best and my grandma didn't want me to speak a lot because I can give away that I'm, I'm American. And so a lot of like pickpocketing or a lot of all these different things, like Israel and violence, like man Israel, 
Um, and so she didn't want me to speak a lot. Um, and so a lot, majority of the time when I was, I didn't speak. Um, so it was kind of like me sitting down and reflecting on myself and the moments that I got to speak and I got to, to be myself was in the company of other children. Um, so like little kids. And so I was like babysitting them or they're like, let, let me show you like, you know, like our cows or something. And I would go with them. And so that just like, I appreciated that. Um, and I, and I note that moment because I returned, I left Ecuador at the age of five. And I feel like I returned to that same age. Like there was something that I was frozen and the way that I was behaving um, or my memories or everything. Like I, I feel like I had stopped at age five and come to America and grown up. But when I returned to Ecuador, I was given opportunity to like, um, to unfreeze from my five-year-old self. And I felt myself like reconnecting to my childhood and, um, and one of the teddy bears that I left behind and the little combs that I had, I found it and I have it with me now. And that's why it was easier to hang out with other children. Um, Cause I felt like coming to the United States, like your childhood um, and growing up undocumented, it stops and it exists. It's like a weird thing. Uh, you mature and also like, but you're still a child. And so like, that was my five-year-old self. Um, and yeah, it was a very hard thing. I'm still processing it. Some of my poems still process it. Um, and because I was able to, I carried this like, this immense opportunity to also capture so many videos and, and home, my, my home and older family members for my parents back home or for my grandfather, who's not able to like migrate for many reasons. Um, I was documenting everything. So my iPhone is like full of like all of those of, of things. And as mundane as they are, like, like going down the stairs of the house, like I wanted to recreate it and, and bring it back home for those who are not able to and my family members. And like when I came back, we brought along like cheese and like a bunch of different things. And so that people can be like, can have peace of, of Ecuador. And I also like brought the footage and the photos on my iPhone and my grandfather like just hurtled around like my iPhone and was just like watching the videos of his father um, before he passed away. And then when he did pass away and I went back to Ecuador for his burial, uh, like it haunts me. And, but I recorded every single aspect of it because my grandfather couldn't be there. And so like, I feel like there's a freedom and also like a heavy burden and a responsibility um, when you're in a mixed status family to to now like bring back and and to find a way to unmend the distance for those who are not able to travel mm-hmm. yeah totally i feel like i i don't know if um my sister feels that way but i definitely have seen or as i've grown older understood that um she's the only one in our family who for until two years ago, well, I just got like 
residency two years ago, but she was the only one who was able to travel all over the 2000s and 2010s. Um, And so I always, uh, like, sensed that she was, like, a little, like, tense for some reason. And now that I've gotten older, I understand because there is that, like, you have to communicate two different identities, especially she's coming from Spain. And so she's now Spanish and Peruvian. And we're here, like, making our American identity. Um in addition to our Peruvian identity. So it's weird to have to navigate with your own family, like so many different cultures as well. Yeah. And also like, um, if, if you're like coming from an indigenous background, um, and trying to reconnect and, or just in general, if you're trying to reconnect with, with your home country or like, um, um, and now you're a rival of like home, like, um, there's just like a lot and you can't fit it in one instance um so i feel like there's like it feels like new year's eve um like so much high pressure and on like it being the best or a birthday right like there's so much tension and pressure um and it is exhausting and um yeah so it's a lot you only have so much so much time um yeah what haunts me is that you said you felt like you were returning to graves uh it's like haunting and at the same time like really insightful of just like how much time passes by and you do write a poem about that um um the first one i'm looking at is hashtag 20 years too late part two um are you able to read that one uh yes and that's an actual real hashtag I use when I went back. Um, so if it, I, again, there was like, I wanted to document that. Um, yeah. So hashtag 20 years too late, part two. I added this line by Octavia Butler that didn't, it didn't have in the past, uh, which is to survive, uh, know the past, let it touch you, then let the past go. Dear Daddy, I grabbed leaves from the eucalyptus trees growing nearby. I sneaked it in the between the pages of my journal. Maybe they can hold the memories of your home. They would dry and crumble by the time I arrived back to New York. Maybe the smell will remind you of your mother's scent. And maybe the stiffness will remind you of the sternness of your father. I'm hoping it survives the journey. But I'm sure you're used to these kind of promises. Not sure anymore if I'm speaking of the leaves or about my heart. I wish I could bring back the whole house. These are the kinds of wishes my granddaughters make. Maybe find your old belongings. Nobody told us that they never wait around for our return. Pieces of your childhood or love notes you left behind under a mattress. The clothes you wore when you were in your 20s. But I could not find much, Dad. Mostly emptiness, a peeling white wall, mostly graveyards, tombstones with cobwebs. I came here too late. I lament not being able to bring you on this trip, the JFK airport swallowing you as you waved goodbye, luggage too heavy with privilege, my hand holding the Ecuador passport and boarding pass. I took my shoes off and I flew thereafter. It's been 10 days. Daddy, I am repacking my luggage. 
bringing you back rocks and leaves from your parents' land. I'm bringing you back some home. Did your dad go with you this one? I'm guessing that he didn't go with you the second time around. No, none of um, the last time, the first trip I did it with my grandma who had, uh, she's been able to get a green card a long time ago. Um, the second trip I went with my mom um, when her, um, her, her green card came through. And um, for some reason, my dad didn't come on time. So he was still undocumented, so he didn't go back. Um, but throughout those periods, um, I always brought back uh, eucalyptus. Um, there's like banana leaves from my mom's house. Like I think my mom's house. Uh, that is like, you know, you expect that from Sonia, like, cause I'm just like a weird child. Like, what are you bringing? But it was just like, I know it makes a difference. Um, like these little things, like plants and trees and stuff. So I'm like, what can I bring that is not generic? Like, okay, not a llama sweater, you know, but what is something more like tangible home? And I, the rocks that I brought my dad uh, were actually from the cemetery that his mom got buried in. And he has, till this day, have not, has not visited uh, the tombstone and I brought back the video of it, like how it is to enter the cemetery and get to it and all different angles. Um, and then pick some of the rocks, um, and some of the leaves that were around and crash like the flowers so that are dry enough and they are not crumbling. Um, and then brought it to him and he still has it in his like, in his like dresser. Um, and I did that for my mother too. Like she missed her home and I brought like banana leaves and, and just like bringing them and, and telling her like, Hey, this is banana leaves. And she actually ended up using them to make, um, omitas or tamales. I forget. Um, and yeah, like I feel like, like those things are so important. Um, like, like the rocks that I'm pretty sure like my mom, like my grandma, like stepped on, uh, or where her body lays on, like those are important things. And, and with the world changing and our climate changing, like, I don't know if they're going to survive and then they're going to wait on for us. And so, um, I had the privilege of like going back and, they don't take as much space in my luggage, so I'm gonna pack as many as I can and just break them, uh, along with the fruits and stuff that are not supposed to be taken out of Ecuador and put it in a sock, doubling it like like a tube sock, still getting caught and being like I didn't know, um, and and my mom and my grandmother getting the find like, but it's all worth it, like it's all worth it, and it's. Um, just like the calling cards, like the steps that we need to do to like bridge like people with their homes and their memories and their family members. Like it's worth it to me. Like like I'll pick as many rocks as I can. um, If that means my dad gets to like reconnect or feel my grandmother. Um, And I feel like I like such a draconian like immigration the the punitive way that immigration is in the the United States and in so many other countries too and even Ecuador with other immigrants, um, I feel like it's like it's 
like we'll continue to imagine different ways to bridge uh, people and their homes and I'm here for it um, even if that means like packing up our luggage with multiple rocks yeah I mean it's it's really cool that you found something tangible to um, to bring back and not just like the the tourist stuff um, I, I wouldn't know what that's like because like uh, I still haven't gone back to Peru yet because the pandemic um i know but i do remember my sister doing something similar like you did um she got like a scarf my one of my mom's scarves that smells a lot like her and she brought it to my brother because my brother hasn't seen her for the the, i mean the same amount of time so um yeah 20 years and we saw a WhatsApp video of my brother receiving that and just like smelling my mom. And we felt like, I remember sitting with my parents and just being so connected to um, my feeling like I finally got to like touch my brother's hand because he like touched my mom. And then like, yeah, I just like, all of those things count so much and they are reimagined ways of connecting with their family members um i think one of the things that i'm constantly thinking about in my own work and that you know i'm seeing in like your work as well is like how how do we reconcile with the fact that like there isn't like a perfect reunification like there isn't gonna be that you know going back to 2002 (laughs) or going back to like the specific year you migrated when you go back to your country um yeah so it it's really beneficial to like i guess bring out those narratives as well of like what does it mean for us to be so-called reunited yeah definitely um i was doing a like a talk with like other Ecuadorian folks. So like the University of Quito uh, and this was going to be my first time. The Panini got in the way and I uh, they were going to bring me back into Ecuador, but I was going to go return as an artist. And I was like, you know, like my first time going back and, and not because like somebody passed away, you know, like, like, and, and, and not using all my money, you know, to pay for flight like they were covering that and then the panini happened but so we had this over zoom and and they were asking you know like about this like reunion and like i feel like there's like there's so much layers and and um i'm also interested in reading from other artists and other culture workers immigration status whether it goes from like being undocumented and then you have DACA and then maybe in a couple of months or a year you those dreamers might get like um citizenship right there's a pathway uh, or maybe not like so many things can happen like these are so like state regulated identities and not even identity but statuses um that many of us haven't really spoken about like the fluidity once what happens uh, I didn't get a manual like what I did get was like welcome to America you know like from the US government um, when my papers came and and then like 
but I, I didn't receive a manual from other folks being like, hey, by the way, like um, once you're the processing of like your immigration status changing is a hard one, um, and especially if you're a community organizer and and it's and it's um, you know it's like you know like uh, and you believe in the power of like frontline communities. Those people are directly experiencing uh, organizing and leading. Like now you're learning to move back, um, and also like um, and like still trying to make sense of your status and like what does that mean and like the hurt and the pain and then the pressure of returning or not returning um like all of this and at the same time uh, one of the things that i brought up is that i love my grandmother like alegria but i also knowing that i, I can't romanticize them in a way that i don't know if they might have been like you know like anti-queer i don't know what you know, she would have made out of me being non-binary, you know, and and also holding that, like, the complexity and, and the layeredness. Um, but I feel like it's just, like, just, like, open-ended questions that many migrant folks, many people who, like, are undocumented, who have been undocumented, have to carry on, especially if those folks have passed away um, or have, like, moved away or removed themselves a part of your life and um but there's just so much and and there's a couple of other other folks that have been writing about like what happens when you get your papers or like um not the happily after after but more of like the layeredness and um I also like for many folks it's also contesting like if you live in multiple identities like yeah, you might get your papers, but what does it mean? Um, um, your experience might differ. Um, that doesn't change that you still might be a brown person, um, that you still might be a black person, a queer, trans person. Like, it doesn't take away. Um, and even within, like, immigration um, statuses, there's still layers of, like, oppressions and privileges that happen. Um like my relationship to like this this nation state um as a non-binary person is very different from a cis um person who has papers right um and yeah and and also like uh, for folks who have papers and maybe have a criminal history like you know have like engage um and in some type of like you know like for whatever reason right like um, might be different from a person who um, who has a quote-unquote clean record. Um, so there's like so many layers to like our immigration experiences that I that I'm interested about the nuance and and I'm hoping to for mo- many of us who have adjusted our immigration status to talk about it and openly. Um, yeah, because I think that adds to it helps our us to imagine. Um, a world without borders and a world without these like fucked up immigration policies. Um, But if we keep things very clean and fixed, I think that doesn't help any of us. So I'd rather us like talk about the nuance and the complexities and the layeredness. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, Definitely like talk about all the layeredness and, you know, to find that kind of space where that conversation is had 
is would be really fruitful as well um and I, I, one of the i remember um there is an organ i don't know if you know this person but there's an organizer i follow they're a new york based organizer angie um and they're colombian also queer and i remember they also got their papers and were sharing that the type of like all, all of the complicated feelings that they were feeling when getting their papers um and yeah that's not talked about enough that feel i feel like that that should be like a i feel like we should almost like all of the everybody should have a forum like all of the undocumented peoples that receive papers it sucks that we're all so isolated and can't really have that conversation uh but what i like is um culture strike and your organizations that you've been in they're definitely like talking about that and are talking about um just like the complicatedness of talking about like the undocumented status um yeah so i, I feel like i'm just like learning so much from you and from all the organizations that you've been in um and i'm thankful that you guys like you know were among the first to like put your but um, to like start a lot of these conversations. But I don't even want to move or walk around the rubble. I think I'm just resting. I think if anything, this this year has taught me is to rest. And I feel like the NAP ministry has ingrained in me the the power and like the it, there is for us to rest, especially for folks of color. Like. Um, yeah, like I, 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 I'm interested in resting and reflecting among, um, on top of the rebel and, um, with my dogs and, and, and not just by myself. I want to see all of us resting and somebody, I feel like somebody made a meme or the net ministry made a meme and it was like, I don't want to fight or I don't want to, I don't want to be protesting. Like, how about meet me by the, by the beach and bring a pillow and a blanket and let's just like rest and like, let's heal and let's just be there. And so I feel like I, I want to be on top of the rubble or maybe something softer or something grassy and just, <laughs> and just watch from afar. Um, and, um, but yeah, I feel like I, I want us to rest and and there's something powerful there and I want us to create when we want to um, and no pressure. And I'm here in solidarity and we'll com- my work will complement to those who are walking on top of the rubble or by the rubble. Um, but yeah, I feel like queer folks have done so much work. We need to rest and, uh, and we need to be in joy and we need to be relaxing. And um, with a nice cold lemonade now that it's summer, um, and looking very, um, looking however we want to be, uh, whatever our aesthetics called us to do, and that can look like shimmery dress or not, uh, pajamas and our what is it called the onesies, uh, yeah. So that's that's my answer to your question. I feel like it's so. Sp- 
Yeah, it so speaks to your work too, because Diana and I were talking about this. We we're trying to find the right language because we were like, we love the way you're creating like this dream space through all of your poems. Like you're creating the world that we want. But then we hated the word dream because we were like, that's so wrapped up in like all of these. Uh, yeah. So, but we were like, but you're really creating the world that you want in these poems. You bring serenity into a lot of your work. And that's so, it's such a piece of breath. To thank you. Thank you. I feel like I'm at almost 32. I'm like, like my back hurts. I have white feet. I don't want to be walking. Like I want comfy shit. I wear my Tevas, you know, like I, I want this to be, um, also like my organizing time, like decades of work that I've like done, non-stop by coastal whatever it is that's as beautiful as it's been it's also took up toll and i feel like that's reflected on other folks too who have done so much work and um and i want us to reimagine what it is to be organizers and cultural workers and activists because the way that it's being framed is so much about burning out and so much about giving and water and like all these different things that um it's like we're doing all this work, um, but then what happens? Like we, like we, we're not gonna even be present to enjoy it. Um, like I, 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 I want us to be there, and I want us to be present um, as liberation is coming. You know, as freedom is coming, because um, this is not the work. If the work is like not eating and not sleeping, and and not being, you know, in love and with your chosen family or your partner or your dogs or, or resting or eating your yummy foods. I don't want it. This is not liberation. This is not freedom. This is not, um, I we can do better. And unfortunately, um, a specific way of organizing is being taught and is glamorized. Um, and as somebody who came as a young organizer, I wish I was told better because I could have avoided so much like depression and and trigger warning like suicide ideation that came from just burning out so much and doing so many things that we shouldn't have been doing um and so yeah like i i want us better i i i think we can do better and we can imagine better practices of of being self and being activists and being artists and culture workers and um and I have faith because I, I do see like so many folks talking about it and doing it. Um, yeah. Where can we, where can we, how can our audience members find you? Do you have social media? Basically, how can, how can they buy your work? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, folks can find me at soniaginansaka.com. So if people are interested in buying chapbooks or posters, um, posters that I did in collaboration with Jessica Snow, uh, amazing chosen femme, but multidisciplinary artist. Um, uh, so there's that, there's postcards, anything people want to support with, um, they can go to soniaginansaka.com and I am on social media, um, mostly on Instagram, um, not Twitter, unfortunately, even though I'm supposed to, cause I'm a poet, but, uh, I love my visual work and that's how I build community. And so that's at the Sonia G, uh, and also, um, I've been learning from other, like 
folks who are doing, um, who are reimagining like our presence on social media and consent, um, that uh, I'm also like right now in this period of this year, I'm figuring out how to engage with social media. So I am on and off, on and off. Um, but you can definitely find me at the Sonia G Facebook is for family. You can follow me there, but there's nothing I post. It's just like getting tagged by my dad. Um, and I am based in LA and New York. So, um, if I'm hosting events or whatever, like it will be based out of both and then virtually, um, and yeah, so people can find me that way. Um, yeah, I also try not to put a lot of my poetry on social, like online. Um, so if you're trying to find my, 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 my stuff, I might not come up a lot. Um, but you can buy my chapbook and get, you know, and, and pay for the labor of writing. Um, what else? Uh, that's all I have. People can find me in, in those ways. And I also want to find people. So if you are like, Femme, if you're non-binary, if you're migrant, if you're undocumented, uh, if you're from Harlem, if you're from New York, um, if you're Quechua, if you're Kenyati, like, let me know. Thank you for listening to Influx Collective, the podcast, Walking Amongst the Rubble, Undocu Queer Pride. To get updates on our upcoming episodes, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or join our email list at influxcollective.org.